Amen. Well, good morning. All right. You guys have gotten used to time change or you've had extra coffee? One of the two. I like it. All right. Revelation chapter 9 is where we're picking up today. There should be a, I'm getting there, there should be a Bible on the front of the chair in front of you. If you have kids with you, your kids are invited to stay. We love having your whole family in here. We think that we grow and learn and do well to disciple our children together. Uh, but if they want to go to a classroom, we've also got that. And so this would be the time, and you can go. All right. All right. So, Revelation chapter 9. If you have a Bible, or if you're borrowing one on the chair in front of you, I can give you the page. It is page 1033. All right. That'll help maybe get you there. All right, so if you're here for the first time, or if you're here for the first time in a while, maybe you're back from school or something, and you're visiting us, and you're jumping in, we're in the middle of a book of the Bible that is totally easy to jump in the middle to, right? Yeah. Revelation is a piece of cake, and so we've been encouraging everybody to keep a journal, keep notes, right through this, because the imagery comes up over and over again, right? And then we, we pick up in this book that is not linear, it isn't written with like it starts here and then it finishes later. It's what we call discursive. And so it goes in cycles. It goes kind of backwards, uh, uh, kind of back and forth between what we see God doing in the upper story, if you will, from God's perspective, and then what we see from the church's perspective here on earth. And that the church, 1900 years ago, when John is writing to the church, right, the author, John, the last living apostle, the last living disciple of Jesus who was actually discipled by Jesus, has been exiled for his faith after many attempts on his life, and, and Jesus reveals this book to him. And as he does, he is told to write this down to the churches that he is in relationship with there in Asia Minor, these seven real churches, one of them we know quite a bit about, the church in Ephesus, <clears throat> as a few books are written to them. And so we have, this, we have this kind of connectivity to the church and what God is saying to the churches, right? The local churches that are living in the world at the time and going through it. And, and actually, when we pick up in the next passage, we'll start seeing some things that are heavily symbolic but really did exist in John's day. We'll see him and his struggle against Rome and the seven churches, how they struggled against Rome. And so we'll start to see some of these things take shape. But up until this point, we've had Jesus reveal himself, the ascended, resurrected, living Jesus, right? The emphasis of the entire New Testament gospel is that Jesus is alive, and he reveals himself to John, and he, he shows him a vision, or a series of visions, and they're to be written down and given to the church, to the churches, the seven that he's writing to. That it will be for them in their day. And, it, and this, even this opening line that says, blessed is the one who reads these words aloud. So that'd be me, right? I get blessed just for doing it, all right? Blessed are those who hear and who obey. So the idea is that you're to hear this and that you should understand this so much that you should be able to live it out. This isn't designed to be a mystery. It was written in an apocalyptic genre, which was common for Scripture, and it uses images that they all understood. And, and we need to hear that over and over again, that these images are not new. 
In fact, today's passage draws from three different Old Testament authors, from Joel, from Daniel, and from Ezekiel. And we've been talking about these, and again, it's been good, it's, it is good for you to continue to write these down so that the images, when they keep popping up, you remember what they are. And so here's where we are in the story. We've been taken from the earth, from the churches who are being persecuted and being called to endure. In fact, told to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, you will inherit eternity. And then we get a, a vision into heaven, and we see God on the throne. We see Jesus looking as a, like a lamb who had been slain, but very much alive. And he takes the scroll from the Father. He takes the scroll from God, the, the story of redemption. He begins to, out, to play it out. And we saw these first four seals open up on the scrolls, these four horsemen. The gospel goes forward, and war, and famine, and death. And then we see this fifth seal open up, and we hear about the prayer of the saints and the, the martyrs. And, and then we see the end of the world happen in the sixth seal. But then the seventh seal opens back up, and it kind of takes us back to the beginning of the seals. And it, and it does so with four trumpets. And again, heavily symbolic, things that would have been much more understood. You've got to understand, think of armies when you see armies back in the days with horses and chariots and trumpets and, and all these things. It, it made sense to them in their day. And so in this, we're in the middle of the trumpets, four trumpets have passed, and it, finished, it, it, it warns us, or the end of those four passages warns us of the coming trumpets. Before we get there, let me just put this slide, kind of a main idea on the screen today, the angel and the little scroll. So after six trumpets sound, revealing justice and judgment on earth today, well, today and always, we get a break in the trumpets with a message to the church. And so here's what we get. We're going to get this angel is going to appear with a little scroll, and John is going to be told to take it and eat it, and it's a message for the church today. And it, it gives us a break in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. And so in the midst of this judgment and wrath and, and, and endurance, we, we get this pause, and the church is called to respond. So right before Revelation 9, we're going to back up one verse into verse 8. It says in verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. A woe is a great sorrow or distress. And he says, woe, woe, woe to those who have to endure what's coming next. It's this warning of great sorrow and distress that is coming upon the earth. And remember, this is this cyclical story. We go, we look from kind of from the divine perspective, the upper story, and John sees this kind of warning coming down, and then we get down to what's taking place on the earth, and then we move back up and we see what's going on in the heavens, and it comes back down to earth. And sometimes the story will advance all the way to the end of the world and then circle back and then tell the story over with a different view in mind. And so that's where we are. We're in the middle of this era, this life that we live. And there, is, there are things that are taking place in the world. And, and what we miss often living here is that we don't always experience them all. Maybe there'll be famine in another part of the world, but it seems like we tend to have enough. 
I think of COVID almost three years ago. Well, actually, three years ago now. Right? And you'd go to the store, and what was missing? Toilet paper. Don't exactly know what that had to do with an upper respiratory problem, but whatever, right? Like, that's our big issues, right? People are binge buying toilet paper. It's not really the same thing as famine and war and plague. So we miss it, and so that's why it's so easy for us to think, well, maybe that's something coming in the future, and miss that it's not future, it's always and that it cycles back and forth between what is happening now and what's going to happen. And if we live long enough, what will happen again? Revelation 9, verse 1. It says, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, and he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So this star fallen from earth, from heaven to earth, is an angel. And I would assert, some say this is Satan. I would say it can't be. We'll see Satan in a little bit, and so that would be confusing. But this star, and, and that is actually consistent language from Revelation. Uh, if you remember back in Revelation, in the first chapter, in fact, we'll put this verse on the screen. In Revelation 1.20, is for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, this is Jesus speaking, the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So this consistent imagery, we'll see it again, I think it's like Revelation 19, we'll see this imagery of some angels being described as a star. And so we see this star come from heaven down to earth, and this star's job is now to open up this bottomless pit with smoke and sulfur and fire. Verse 3, it says this. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Now locusts, again, remember there's nothing new. As many commentators, actually as I've been reading more people, lots of commentary authors and lots of different people said, listen, there's no real new message in Revelation. It's a new way of telling a message that's been around since the prophets of the Old Testament. It is a new collection, or the way it's put together is new, but the imagery all exists. And so this locust imagery is all throughout the Old Testament. It's probably most well pronounced in the prophet Joel. Joel 1.4 says this, and this, this, this um, judgment on the people of God. It says, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And that's God speaking through the prophet Joel saying, listen, these, these locusts are coming on the land, on God's people. And that's different here for the story. But hear this. The locusts are sent to judge God's people for their disobedience. And the locusts come out upon the land and they eat. Now locusts eat all the green uh, vegetables and, and foods and things, they will devour all your crops. And so these locusts come out, and these different kinds of locusts destroy their food and, and, and in, in essence, cause a famine. And so it doesn't have to be literal locusts. It can be a famine. It can be the same idea, or it can be literal locusts. But the, the imagery that John hears is not unfamiliar to him. He understands this, when he hears locusts, he's drawn back to not just this passage in Joel, but so many times where God has used this imagery. So we're going to restart in verse 3. 
Then from the smoke came the locusts of the earth. So from the smoke, from the bottomless pit, this angel has opened up and unlocked come these locusts. And they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So locusts again as an image, but with a twist, if you will. Right? And this time, it has nothing to do with food, which that's what locusts eat. But this time, in fact, it's not even against non-believers. It says this time, it will be against those who are not gods, those who are not sealed by God, right? And we remember last week that there are, uh, the last couple of weeks, that we've talked about those who are sealed by God, that, that God has the elect sealed, because he has every believer identified, and that we would see God preserve and care and patiently await the final one to come to faith. And, and as the prayers of this, the martyrs who cry out to God, how long, O Lord, we gave our life for you, how long, O Lord? And he says, just, just a little longer, I have more that are mine. He says, and I am faithful to go get them. And so we see this, and we see this preservation of God's people. And so locusts again, but they're not to devour food, but they're to be a torment upon the earth. Now, they don't need to be literal locusts here. That the imagery here is what was most important to the reader. That in all these images, in all these things, and we're gonna, as we keep reading, there's a likely chance it can't be actual locusts. That it's meant to be descriptive and image-driven and make you feel something more than understand something. So verse 5 says this, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So they're called to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. So it's kind of like the one-third that we saw last week. It's one-third of the earth was this partial destruction, this partial and so this five-month idea is this temporary or short-term. And I'm sure when you're going through it, five months doesn't feel short. Right? In the grand scheme of things, five months is this short period. Now, it's, it's a sizable or a noteworthy period of time, but it's not meant to say, okay, here's X amount of days. Right? Just like the one-third doesn't need to be literal. It's to understand, okay, it's partial and not complete. But it says this. It says people will seek death and not find it. It's just a, a heart-wrenching verse when we read that, that people will seek death and not find it. So for those of you that are note-takers, I'm going to put this on the screen. When humanity is without hope, life is unbearable. The defining difference in Christianity is that our hope is not in this world, but in Christ eternally. You see, our hope isn't here. And that's why we can read words about struggles here on earth and understand we will endure tribulation, that we will endure hardship, that we will endure persecution, suffering, maybe even death, that we could endure martyrdom. But our hope isn't here. That our hope isn't here on this earth, that our hope is in Christ eternally, and that changes. But when you don't have that, when all that you have is here, or even maybe a, a, a a caution to the church when most of what you hope in is here. Well, then this can be pretty distressing. 
but this isn't going this way or, or life isn't turning out this way. Well, it's because we're supposed to lift our hope up, that our hope is in Christ forever. But the world out there lacks hope. And that's a job that we play is to bring light into a dark world. Verse 7, it says, in appearance, and again, this is why it does not likely mean literal. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. <clears throat> On their heads were what looked like to be crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. The hair, like women's hair. Their teeth, like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates, like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And so loaded with simile, right? Loaded with comparison, loaded with their whatever is like this. And honestly, I, I want you to, and, try, and, and rather than trying to see it or envision it, not much of a horror movie guy, but when you see those commercials, you're watching something else, you see those commercials, commercials for something that is horror movie-ish, right, or evil, and you see these images. Like, I've even noticed, and, and maybe this is just more about me and my age, I guess, than anything else, but Batman was just so comic-y back in, as a kid, right? I'm not even, like, Burt Ward and Adam whatever his name is old, right? I mean, like, I just meant, like, I caught that middle group. I just recently watched the Batman. And the images are just dark. Like, go back to Heath Ledger's character. All the way from there forward, the images, they're just... People know how to portray evil, right? Like, we're good at understanding this doesn't look good. Right? This evokes in a, a feeling inside of you. And that's what this should do. Right? What it should do is cause a feeling, evoke a feeling, an emotion in you. That we should hear this, and this should be frightening. Verse 11, it says, They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is called Apollyon. So this may be a defining verse for the fifth trumpet. Is it is probably pretty unmistakable that this angel of the bottomless pit is Satan. And so the star falling from heaven to earth is not Satan, as it's sometimes said to be. That would be hard for Satan to let Satan out, right? Makes sense. And so what we see is this consistent imagery of this star representing an angel opening up this bottomless pit. And from this bottomless pit come these hordes of locusts, which are likely now that we see that Satan is this controlling authority, then it's probably demonic. Right? We could safely say these locusts represent something demonic. Now, maybe, maybe literal locusts, I doubt it. Maybe kind of these demonic influences, maybe something that just comes and it, and it strikes the world for a season, and it really does target those who are not believers, which makes sense, right? As we are sealed by God, and that demonic influence has no authority over us, and so we can see how that might play out. But regardless of whether this was a real locust or something that causes the same outcome like famine or persecution or illness or death or it's actually demonic, I would say this, since Jesus is the solution to all of that, does it really matter which thing it really is? Are you with me? 
So no matter how it plays out, no matter what this is, well, Jesus is the answer. I think of the story of Job, right? Most of you are familiar with the story of Job. Job is a man, a godly man, a righteous man, large family, wife, wealthy. And Satan is allowed to tempt him and afflict him, and he does. He causes financial ruin, illness, death in his family, things like that. And all these things take place, but you could... You just kind of remove Satan, and all those things could still take place, right? You could lose your finances. You could become ill. You could lose family members to death. Like, all those things are natural things that do happen. They're just brought on, in this case, supernaturally, right? It's not like additional things come into play. And so whatever this is, whatever negative, whatever evil influence this is, whether it be literal or image-driven, or demonic, it still plays out the same way. That all the same things still happen, and the good news is the answer in all cases here is Jesus. That the gospel is the solution for all our struggles. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So, no matter what your woes are today, the answer is Jesus. I see it's, it's knowing that there's a God who created us and designed us and loves us and made us. And then because he made us, he gets to tell us, this is how you were made. This is how you're designed. This is how you function best. And when you go outside of that, you don't function best that way. And going outside of God's created plan for us, and we call sin, it, it's choosing to go our way and not God's way. And that's what happened. God made us. God made humanity. Humanity abandoned God. We all have turned our back on God. In fact, if you're with us today, maybe you're new here today, you're a guest today. Uh, as a church, we would gladly tell you we understand our brokenness, right? That we understand how disobedient we can be. We clearly don't think we have it all together. Am I right, generations? We clearly don't have it all together. So we know what sin is, and, and that's not to make an excuse for it to say it's okay. We just know that even understanding all that God has done for us, we still tend and struggle and want to go our own way, and sometimes give in to that, and sometimes don't. But the good news is that Jesus came down from heaven, that, that instead of asking or expecting us to become perfect and holy, which we can't do, a holy God came to us and, and put on flesh and became human. And he lived the life that you and I are called to live. And he, he did so always glorifying God. And then, then he did all that we are called to do. And then he gave his life for us. He paid the price for us. He traded himself for you and for me. And that's the very thing as we, as we get ready. Now we're coming up on Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, of course... We talk about this all the time. Like, we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. But as our nation and our world draws into a season where many who don't often come to church will also come and hear about the resurrection, we know that Christ applied to us also means life given to us. Right? That forgiveness here is also new life here. That the resurrection gives us new life. We're empowered to live for Jesus. And that the, the, no matter what the woe is for us, no matter what the sorrow is for us, no matter what the struggle is for us, whether created by us or, or just because we live in a sinful and broken world or because of something going on in the world, spiritual or not, 
we know that the answer is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God. And that in Christ we are given new life. And that in this world we will still suffer tribulation. That's okay. We do so joyfully, or we hope to do so joyfully, so that we can shine light into a dark world, that we can be Christ's witnesses in a dark world. And so as these things play out on the earth, there is a purpose for the church remaining. That we are here, and yes, we endure, and yes, we, we, and we feel the impact of some of those things as well, but we do so with a purpose that others can hear about Jesus. That we have a mission and a message. That we can be a light in a dark world. In John 16, it says this, Jesus speaking, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus says, I've overcome this. I've endured, and, and I've given you my spirit. You now endure. Take heart, I've overcome this world. So back in Revelation verse 13, it says this, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. So we're six out of seven trumpets in now. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. There's a lot here that we're not going to cover. We'll talk more about it in the coming weeks. But the images to the church here around the river Euphrates would have reminded them about a, an invasion that had recently hit Rome. The, Euphra the Euphrates used to be this border and boundary, still was, this place that kind of restrained others. And so this idea of these four angels at the four corners of the earth, if you will, east, south, north, west, right? If you see them there, kind of restraining judgment. And now the sixth trumpet blows. And they begin to release more of what God has. But I want you to hear this. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. Remember we've talked about that at the golden altar, the altar of incense is where the prayers of the church rise up to God. We've seen that each week. In the midst of the struggle, we've seen each week, we've seen the church praying. It should be a challenge to us that we constantly, repeatedly see the church praying. Right? We get to gather together tonight at 6. That we get to gather together and pray. We do that once a month. And I would encourage you, come and join us tonight. Join us for prayer. Join us as we begin to pray for Easter. We have an opportunity with our neighbors, with our loved ones at Easter. Pray for the hardship. I know just even this morning and over the last couple of weeks, it feels like there's been some very hard as an understatement, some very challenging things going on within families that we know and love and care about. Um, parts of our church, members of our church that are in the hospital right now, just clinging to life barely. And like, there's just hard things right now. The church prays. We're called together to pray. And when we see the church and we see the world enduring hardship and suffering and tribulation, and, and we see this, what we constantly are reminded of in, in Revelation, we keep seeing the church gathered together and praying. And we see their prayers rise up to God, and they're often described in the incense, this fragrant aroma rising up to God. And, and we should want to be that. We should desire to gather, to lift up our voices. That doesn't mean you have to necessarily come and pray out loud if you're not quite there yet. 
though there's space for that. But just as Alex led us in some prayer this morning, that we would gather together and understand that we're called to pray together. So join us tonight. Selah, by the way, just means pause and reflect. It's just our time once a month that we get to gather together, pause and reflect and pray together. Verse 15, so back as the sixth trumpet blows, it says, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. Remember, John writes with the, how I, what I heard and what I saw. And they're not always the same thing. They are complementary. But he hears one thing and he sees another. He heard the lion of the tribe of Judah. He looked and saw a lamb as if it had been slain. He heard 144,000 from these tribes. And then he saw a great multitude nobody could number from all nations, tribes, and tongues. Right? And then he, he hears their number. And then this is how he saw, it says, verse 17. This is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates of color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By, this, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And so these fire, smoke, and sulfur are considered three plagues that come out of them. Verse 19, for the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. It says that the day and the hour, down to the very minute that God has prepared, this takes place. right? And this is another partial judgment. This is another thing that comes out, and a partial part of the world is destroyed. It says another third. It doesn't say another. It says a third of. And we, we talked about this before. These one-third things are meant to give us this partial judgment feel. It doesn't have to be, you know, one, two, three, you're out. One, two, three, okay, that one's out. But it's meant to say it's not complete, it's not whole, it's partial. And that it is affecting a great number, but not all. These destruction images remind us of the four horsemen in the beginning of the four seals. This language begins to repeat. And again, remember, the trumpets back up, and they retell the story from a different point. But why so many images? And I'll probably ask this again later. Why would God give us so many images without wanting to give particular clarity or particular identity? Right? These are not supposed to just point to a one-time, a thing. So why, why do this thing, and, and why not just explain what it is? Sometimes Jesus will explain, hey, listen, the stars I have in my right hand, those are the angels, right? And the lampstands, those are the churches. He's very clear, right? Or this is this, this is that, right? And explains. But then these visions of judgment are unclear. They're frightening, which is what they're supposed to be. They should evoke an emotion in you. But they're not supposed to aim at a particular. So we've got to ask, okay, why, why, why such image? Why less clarity? Why in these moments is it less clear? Verse 20, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these three plagues, again, the fire, the smoke, the sulfur, did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders and their sorceries and their sexual immorality or their thefts. So those who remain, 
those who are not gods, those who are not taken by these plagues, those who are not affected by war or famine or death, by the fire, the smoke, the sulfur, those who are left, those who are not taken by this, those who live through things. Could be in our lifetime, could be those who live through COVID, could be those who live through whatever, the unrest and culture around justice issues, could be anything. As nations topple around the world and, and people go to war around the world, it can be anything. But here's what it says, those who don't die also don't repent. They don't give up their idolatry. And remember, Paul defines idolatry so clear for us. It's trading in worship of the creator for worship of created things. See, anything created can become an idol, even a good thing. Your wife, your husband, your kids, your job, ministry, anything can be an idol if treated wrongly, if put wrongly in your life. See, even those who are destroyed don't repent. They don't turn, it says, from the works of their hands. There's this need for repentance. We'll put this on the screen. The sixth trumpet brings more judgment on earth, yet the world does not end. Revelation 9 shows us an unrepentant world in the midst of God's judgment. It could be things that we don't necessarily assign to judgment. I, God didn't come down and say, listen, COVID is because of this, right? But COVID did happen. Did it move people to faith? Or did it further divide people into political camps? I'd say the latter. The world needs repentance. We need repentance. That's why we gather together and pray, and we pray for the world we live in. We pray for the people we love that don't know Jesus. We pray for repentance, that people need to repent and turn to God alone found in Christ alone, that the gospel would transform them. Revolution, Revelation 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like a sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. So another mighty angel. Again, there was a mighty angel that called out to John when the scroll was revealed in Revelation 5, and a mighty angel cries out, who can open the scroll? No one is found worthy to open the scroll. And, and John in that moment loses it. He, he begins to weep that no one is able to open the scroll, kind of representing redemptive history. And then that mighty angel proclaims the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John looks and sees a lamb looking as if he had been slain. And Jesus begins to unfold redemption. This is another mighty angel. Clearly, there are categories that were given, if you will, for angels and, and heavenly beings, the four living creatures, and, and all these things taking shape. But verse 2 says this, he had a little scroll open in his hand. Now, I want to I qualify this a little bit. If you were living 1,900 years ago, this made sense. If you were Jewish, this made sense. But to us reading it, we don't necessarily get it right when we hear it. So I want to put this verse on the screen. This is out of Ezekiel 2. God speaking to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel writes this down. It says, when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was, written, was in it. And he spread it before me, and he had writing on the front and the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. You see this little scroll being handed to Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel's going to be told to eat it. We'll see that in a little while. Same as John does. So this imagery repeats itself. 
John is saying the exact same thing that Ezekiel is saying. Sadly, modern-day Christianity isn't very familiar with the Old Testament. And so as we get to Revelation, we take it in its isolation as if this is brand new, and it's not. The locusts are common. The little scroll is common. The beings in it are common. The imagery is common. We, we have kind of an answer key, if you will, in the first two-thirds of the Bible. And then, in many cases, even in Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, we're given the images. We just don't know it. So verse 2, we'll restart there. He had a little scroll open. It's this mighty angel. He had a little scroll open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot he set on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So John hears this mighty angel with a little scroll in his hand. Again, a little scroll, not to be confused with the scroll that was in God's hand, the scroll with seven seals that only Christ could open. A little scroll, like back in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel was given this to then proclaim to the people, the people of God, that they needed to repent and where they had gone wrong, this lamentation and judgment and woe, as Ezekiel says. And so this is repeated. And when the mighty angel proclaims and he begins to speak, the seven thunders, these, this noise takes place, and John understands it, and John is told, you don't get to repeat that. Now, this is not the first time here either. Daniel's told to seal it up. Isaiah's told to seal it up. Many are told, listen, here's something for you, but that's it. Isaiah's book breaks in the middle and is sealed for 120 years, and then is able to be opened up to the people of God once they've repented. This happens. It's not new. John got to hear something that we all don't get to hear. He was told, do not write it, but seal it up. See, sometimes we are given something. Sometimes we are told things by God, and, and the idea behind them is to motivate us to action. Right, that it should cause us, give us reason to go. I use this example a lot with uh, when we're in discipleship groups. Like Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone in Scripture. In fact, possibly more than all people in Scripture combined. Jesus spoke about hell a lot. But do you know who he was always talking to? It was to his disciples. Jesus was never found standing on the street corners yelling at people, hey, did you know if you die tonight, you're going to hell? Hey, did you do this with their banners and whatever? And yeah, I can't stand those guys, right? And so that's not what Jesus did. But he did teach deeply about hell to his disciples, that they would understand the cost of them not going out and sharing Christ with others, that they would understand what this game is all playing for, that eternity hangs in the balance, that the gospel is, it is the deciding factor between an eternity separated from God and under judgment and wrath and an eternity with him in heaven where there are no more tears and no more pain, where sin will never be again. And so his team, his disciples, his students needed to understand the weight of what was at hand. And in this moment, John is told something that we don't get to know. 
and that's okay. It was for John to understand why this is so important. Verse 5, it says, the angel, John says, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven, and what is in it, real quick pause, a lot of people see this mighty angel and some of the description and think, well, maybe it's Jesus. It can't be, because he swears by God. He cannot be God. You with me? All right. Little nerd note. All right. So the angel, I'm a nerd. It's what you get. All right, so, swore by him who lives for and ever and ever. So this mighty angel swears by God who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea is what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets, just as God has told who? Ah, oh, his servants, the prophets. So there's nothing new here, right? The imagery is repeated. Yeah, the only thing new is that John is sandwiching a bunch of it together into one message as Jesus has taught him to here, as Jesus reveals to him. As Jesus shows him, he puts it together. But again, it's a message that's been around as long as Scripture. That upon the seventh trumpet, again, like the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet is the end. And at that, that final woe, that's the end. So the next trumpet will describe the end, and let me qualify that, the, the end of this human existence. And the entrance into eternity forever here on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 8, and when the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and the land, so I went to the angel, told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So the same words given to Ezekiel are now given to John. Take and eat it. It will make your stomach sick. It will taste sweet in your mouth. You see, this wrath and judgment that God is pouring out on humanity ought to make us sick. It ought to bring us to a place where, like, that's horrible. We don't want to see that. But, see, the gospel is sweet. Yes, the gospel is true. That either you're in Christ or you're not. The gospel is clear, and that should be either super sweet to you because you are to be found in Christ, or it should make you sick that either you are not or your loved ones are not. And, again, this is a message to the church that we should hear that the reality of the gospel has two facets to it. And that judgment is judgment. That it causes, or it should cause in us, a reaction. Redemption and salvation are sweet, but judgment and death is bitter. Verse 10, John says, And I took the little scroll from the, the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many people's nations, languages, and kings. Take the gospel. Digest the gospel. Yes, it's sweet to you, but the reality of those others, it should make you sick. And then he tells them what he's to do with it. Just as Ezekiel was told to go and take that message to the people of God and call them to repentance. 
teaching them that just because you were born in Israel does not make you God's people. And I'll say that to you, just because you go to church does not make you God's people. Sitting here does not make you Christ's. But it definitely brings you to a place where you can follow Jesus. Remember the locust from Joel 1. One of these images that keeps coming out of Revelation. What do we do when we hear, okay, so this is going to take place, whether that be famine or, or maybe literal locusts or demonic kind of these things that take place. What do, we, what do we do when we hear, listen, this is not just future, this is always. This happened to John and the seven churches. This happened a century later. It happened the next century. It happened the next century. It happens this century. It happened last century. And if we live long enough, it'll happen in the next century. So what do we do? If there's going to be partial judgment meted out, and what do we do if we're in it? What do we, what do, we do while we remain? And, and yes, of course, we remain with the purpose of being light in a dark world. But what do we physically do? And I love what comes out of this passage. And so I want to I take us back to Joel 1. I want to read you a verse and, and give you an application. So in Joel 1, it says, Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Note, fast and pray, but what? Together, come to the house of the Lord and do this, right? Cry out to the Lord. Together, alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and his destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Destruction is coming. Struggle is coming. Persecution is coming. Death is coming. Disease is coming. The collapse of this nation, we last long enough, will happen. Could be in our lifetime, could not be. Only God knows. So what do we do? Well, the prophet Joel calls us to fast and pray. So here's a note for you. We are not only messengers to the world we live in, but we are called to fast and pray for their repentance. God desires to save and desires us to participate. That we're to take the word. That we're to hear the gospel. And you should leave, if you're in Christ, you should leave here encouraged today. And a little nauseous that not everybody is saved. And our response to that, our action step, we take that and we, we hear that and, and we know we can't save anyone, but what we can do is fast and pray. We can join together and fast and pray. I'm going to get something out in the next day or two. Uh, but I'm going to call us to fast together before Easter and to gather together and pray together before Easter. We have an opportunity to pray together tonight. I, I, please come, right? I know it's one of the least attended things. You would hear this and you would think we, should, we would all show up for prayer. We don't. Please join us in prayer. But we're also going to call for a church-wide fast and a night of prayer. And if we can pull it off, maybe we'll break our fast together as a church. But we want to fast and pray for the lost. We have an opportunity at Easter for people to show up that we want them to hear the gospel with power. Next verse, Joel 2, says this in the very next chapter. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. God's joy is not in the judgment. It's in the repentance. But it begins with us. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments. They would fast and they would tear at their clothes to make themselves holy. And he says, no, no, no. Tear the junk out of your heart. Church, we need to repent that the world around us would see a people of God that is different. So here's your last note. A call to repentance. To be effective 
as messengers to the world, or even in prayer and fasting, we must live in constant repentance. It isn't simply our words or our witness, but our relationship with Jesus that empowers us. I want you to hear that again. It isn't just our words or our witness, but it's our relationship with Jesus that empowers us to the world. Are you with me? We live in constant repentance so that we might call a world to repent. We might call our loved ones to repent. And the power that lives in us lives in us by the Spirit through our repentant life. So we are constantly laying our life bare before Jesus that he might transform us and call us to change. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. There's nothing good in us, in our nature. There is sin. There is nothing selfless in our nature. We are selfish. We want our way. We want, our, we want what we want. But you, Jesus, gave up what you want, gave up what you deserve, gave up the glory of heaven to become human. That you condescended to humanity, that you gave up everything to become like us. Jesus, you did so that we might be reconciled to God, that a sinful humanity might be brought back to a holy God, that you would save all those who, who are yours, that you would draw us and that we would return to you, that you would raise us up and, and empower us and send us out to this world. Though in our minds and our hearts we don't want to suffer, we will gladly live in this world to be a light for you to others. And if our hearts aren't there yet, help our hearts get to that place where we will endure so that others might know you. Because that is far greater that we would sacrifice this life in order for many to come and know you in the life to come. Help us not to place all our emphasis here, but to be strangers and aliens here, to live for that which is our home, which is forever. Jesus, you have shown us the way. You have given us, you, you have made us your own by what you have done, not what we have done. You have called our name and raised us up with you. You've given us your spirit through baptism. You have sent us as missionaries in our own communities. Let us be faithful to your calling, Lord. Let us gather and fast and pray. Let us repent together. It starts with me. I don't fast nearly enough, Jesus. So it starts with repentance on my part. Forgive me. Help me be a better pastor, Lord, that our church might, be, might grow in our faith. Call us to prayer tonight, Lord, we pray that we might hold up those we love. More importantly, that we might hold up those you love. And so, Jesus, it's in your name we pray.